Hi everyone, I hope you're keeping well. My name is Dylan Chaus and welcome to my YouTube channel, Existential Delight. This episode continues a series on my channel in which I have conversations with interesting people. Today's guest is David Patrick Harry. He is a religious scholar and all-round very interesting guy. He is the creator of two YouTube channels, Fractal Universe and The Church of the Eternal Logos. I really enjoyed the conversation. And we spoke about a lot of different things, but our main focus was New Age thought and Christianity. We both have similar backgrounds in that we were immersed in the psychedelic New Age worldview, but eventually came to see the claims of Christianity as the ultimate truth. If you enjoyed this conversation, let us know why in the comment section below and consider giving the video a like. It helps a lot. Also, consider subscribing for more content like this. And of course, be sure to check out Patrick's YouTube channel, Church of the Eternal Logos. All links are in the description below. And without any further delay, we now turn to my conversation with David Patrick Harry. How are you, David? I'm doing great, brother. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks, man. Can't complain. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank I'm, you for uh, having me. I really appreciate it. We've kind of been back and forth, uh, you know, uh, almost playing email tag, if you will, for the last month or so, trying to set up a time to, to really chat. And so I'm thankful that we finally found the time uh, to do this. So thanks for having me on again. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. And thanks for coming on. And um, yeah, we have sort of been going back and forth, but uh, eventually we're here. And um, I think I should just start off by saying like, if anyone doesn't know you or doesn't know the kind of work you do, how would you describe it to somebody? Um, how did you get into YouTube and what kind of work are you are you currently invested in? So I got into YouTube uh, probably back in 2015, I think, uh, 2014, 2000, no, it was 2015. And I had a channel called Fractal Universe, Universe spelled Y-O-U-N-I. V-E-R-S-E, and I was really wrapped up in sort of the psychedelic uh, worldview, the new age, spiritual but not religious, uh, that type of stuff, and was really interested in posting content by a lot of these guys and, and adding really unique and interesting visuals to highlight the things that they were talking about. And I did mm -hmm. that for multiple years, and uh, eventually, as we will get into in this conversation, uh, found myself uh, really deconstructing that worldview, uh, criticizing it, finding multitude of contradictions, and really coming to the realization that that can't be true, and in so doing, taking spirituality very seriously, um, and discovering Eastern Orthodoxy for me. And so what I do now, I have a channel called Church of the Eternal Logos, where I really try to talk to people about Christianity, about Christian apologetics, about philosophy from a fairly sophisticated, at least I try to be, a sophisticated point of view of looking at this concept of logos. And so this is where we come. This is why I named the channel Church of the Eternal Logos. It's not a church. Uh, I'm not a pastor. I'm not leading. I'm not a cult or anything like that. But I just thought it was a clever way to try to talk about uh, this concept of logos, which Christianity is actually very unique in, the, in world religions in the mm -hmm. way that it adopted this concept that was being developed for 500 years before Christ and Heraclitus and Plato and Aristotle and Stoics, um, that who, when, when the Gospel of John, when John the theologian writes in Arche and Hologos, in the beginning was the words, often it's translated in English, what exactly that means, because that is so impactful and you have to really um, 
unpack that concept. And so that is what the whole channel then is about is doing cultural commentary, talking about philosophy, talking about the new age, all from this mm. concept of the yeah. logos incarnating as Jesus Christ. Yes, the logos is like kind of like a seed and that produces all these branches of different topics that you can explore, right? Which all point back to that exactly that one fundamental. Oh, that's awesome. And if I if I could just, I know that I know this is such a loaded question, but what does logos mean to you? Mm. Like when you hear the word logos, what 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 comes to mind? Uh, for me, I immediately think of the second person of the Trinity. And again, mm. it's because I approach it from a Christian perspective. So um, the term just saying logos can mean a lot of different things to different people. Even some yeah. Christians uh, use it more in sort of the abstract Greek philosophical approach, where it's just this, this concept relating to order, relating to logic or reason or uh, even number theory, uh, language, stuff like that. And I agree with all those things, but for me, I take it a lot, a lot further. And so mm -hmm. when I think of logos, I think of like logos theology. And so then we get into how, at a more sophisticated level, how we account for what philosophy calls the philosophical transcendentals, these things that we all assume, but we can't touch, like mm -hmm. the laws of logic. And so yeah. when you look at uh, a sort of atheistic or materialistic worldview, somebody who believes in the cosmology of the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, that they also believe that materiality itself is continually evolving. Uh, again, we'll get into Terence McKenna. He had the idea of, of novelty theory, uh, which yeah. is related to Alfred North Whitehead and, and um, uh, process philosophy. So everything is this process that is complexifying. And yes. if that is the case, how then do non-physical things like the laws of logic exist? An atheistic and materialistic worldview actually can't account for these things. It can't account for the number seven, for example, uh, because yeah. that is a mental construct that then we realize we can place onto physical reality. And so the way in which, from my perspective, mm -hmm. from Logos theology, the re reason why that works is because we're made in the image of God. And Logos mm. is the mind of God. Logos is the Son of God. Logos is the second person of the Trinity. And because all these things are rooted in the Logos, us being made in its mm. image, we can participate in logic. We can participate in numbers and language and love and honor and glory and all these things that we can't touch, but we know mm. are, are is more real than the things that we can touch. Yeah, and it's almost like when we're gone, they're still going to be here. Uh, right. Uh, Honor is still going to be here in a hundred years, so they're almost right. the outlast humans, even. And it's yeah, right. it's um, it's it's like, and both of us, and we'll 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 move into this soon. It's we both come from this sort of, um, I would say we've we sort of we went through that almost atheistic experience or atheistic sense of the world. And then through the psychedelics and then actually coming out on the other side, seeing things in, 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 this, in this way you've described, it's almost like you, you get to the point where, at least for me, I look at the order that I see around me. And like you say, there's, we, we, we can sort of see order daily. We, we can see it, but we don't really ask the question, like, what compels things to have order? What compels right. things to complexify? Why is it that something should even need to complexify? We sort of right. just sort of accept that off the bat. 
and you sort of, sort of start going, well, there does seem to be an order. Even the very language that we speak, um, I can't just, um, you know, change the way words are structured. Immediately, the meaning is lost once I try to do that. And so I've, I've robbed the sound of that, that, that reason principle which allows you to comprehend what I'm saying once right. I start just messing with the order. So the fact that you can then understand what I'm saying once I imbue order implies that there's some kind of a principle which allows things to structure themselves in such a way that we can perceive them, that we can understand them. And would, would it be fair to say that that is this idea of logos? Just one, one sort of yes. aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, one right? little strand. Yeah, one little aspect, one little dimension. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so we can get more into that, but that, that's exactly the case. And so how do you begin to justify those things in one's worldview? Mm. And it's these types of questions that brought me out of the spiritual, not religious, the new age, the psychedelic stuff that I was deeply, deeply embedded into and, and devoted so much of my time and life to that I didn't want to let go of that stuff. You put so much <laughs> energy. I was making quite a bit of money doing a YouTube channel, uh, promoting that stuff. And it comes to a point where it becomes so obvious that that can't be true. And just like you're talking about these, these sort of more fundamental questions, again, a more sophisticated take on what's going on in the world. But um, eventually you have to you have to let go and you have to follow what's true. And yeah. I think that's why, as we will probably get into, um, myself included, you, uh, so many people that I've spoke to through emails and stuff that have reached out to me is the movement out of these new age worldviews, the spiritual, religious, the psychedelia, I think it is people honestly looking for truth. And, and, and the, yeah. because of that, Jesus Christ, the Logos is the bottom of the rabbit hole. And, uh, and it, it takes a while for that to make any sense. Because if somebody says that, you're like, oh my gosh, what's this guy, a fundamental <laughs> Christian? Like, this guy's yeah. an idiot. Um, yeah. But it, it actually, it takes real devotion to try to figure out, well, what exactly is true? And, and I want to know what is mm -hmm. true. And, and I'm okay with changing my worldview. I'm okay with, with shifting where I'm at in my perspective. I just want to know what's true. And, yeah. and that leads us then to, again, this, this concept of logos at, at a much more fundamental and real level of, yeah. wow. Uh, and that's why the Greek philosophical tradition, again, using this concept, instrumental in Plato's idea of forms, platonic mm -hmm. solids, all this stuff is rooted for him in the source of archetypes in the logos. Yeah. And so even getting into psychological understandings, Jungian archetypes, Jungian understandings of the subconscious, um, well, we can, from a theological level, root all that stuff back in the logos again, which is makes sense because that's the divine mind. So its course is going to mm -hmm. work at a psychological level, whereas for a lot of psychologists, even for Jung, they're rooting it back in a sort of macro Darwinian Wallace theory of evolution that, oh, well, these are embedded in the subconscious based on lived experience. And, and so it's this, this uh, roundabout feedback loop of lived reality embedding itself within the subconscious and therefore constructing these archetypes and symbols of myths and all this stuff. Yeah, we, we would agree that archetypes exist, uh, but mm. we're going to change, we're going to totally alter in how, and just how we justify those things, um, because even within evolutionary theory, that would imply that truth itself changes. So there's a contradiction yeah. even within Jungian psychology, Jungian archetypes, mm. is, Interesting. oh, we're talking about eternal truths that are being represented through these patterns, yet the whole basis for the theory is that everything is changing. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Mm. So you are 
this atheistic, naturalistic guy, you one day take, in my case, you do Terence McKenna's challenge, <laughs> and, you <t> and you're <laughs> taking five dried grams in silent darkness, and you're alone. And um, I believe, if I, if I remember correctly, in your case, it was um, LSD, right? Mm -hmm. Correct, yeah. correct. And um, there's this moment where suddenly, for me, my materialism, it seemed absurd to be a materialist anymore. Um, the idea of that the world was just material, that there was no meaning, that there was no reason to anything, it mm -hmm. actually became absurd. I actually recently told a friend that you can't talk me into pure materialism any more than you can talk me into being two feet taller, right? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and so that that experience that you have with psychedelics, whichever one it might be, are we as Christians allowed to say that psychedelics, I'm not asking you this like you're the authority, right? But right, right, I'm just right. sort of pondering it. But are we allowed to say that psychedelics actually in some way helped me get to God? Or is it that God reached into my psychedelic world and pulled me out of it? Right. Um, and I guess the question I'm trying to get to is how instrumental were psychedelics in your in your journey to God, or were they at all instrumental? Well, I think that question that you pose is very interesting. Um, is it the psychedelics that lead to God, or is it God that brings you out of the psychedelics? And I, I would say um, that there's a little bit of both in the sense that I view it just based on my larger, again, a theological approach yeah. of God's providence and having providential dominion over the entirety of history itself, that... Yes. Um, it was God's providence, you know, me using my free will, getting into the psychedelics, God then used that for a larger purpose. And so, yeah. yes, the psychedelics were leading me towards God, but God was in control. And we're talking about the Christian God. We're talking about a Trinity. We're not talking about this abstract, Neoplatonic, oh, the oneness <laughs> yeah. out there. No, I'm very specific. We're talking about the Christian God. That's the only God that I'm referring to. Yeah. And... Um, the, the psychedelics then, I think, were instrumental for me because where I was when I was first getting into the psychedelics, very much, um, I grew up Methodist, for example, so I grew up in a fairly conservative uh, Methodist household, and it was in, by the time, you know, in my early 20s that I started to really get interested in the psychedelics, and it verified a spiritual reality, so... yeah. It, it totally uh, shatters a materialistic worldview because of the intensity of these experiences and really opening you up to the sort of noumenal realm that, okay, mm -hmm. well, spirituality has to be real. Um, but what that did for me was really, in my mind, move me towards a more heady lifestyle. So I was never a big academic. I was never, you know, growing, uh, even through high school, I was much more of an athlete. But mm. getting into the psychedelics, getting more interested in knowledge, which was already happening before I got into the psychedelics, but yeah. it, it verified this thing of this search, this spiritual search of reading the books, getting into this stuff, and, and really giving oneself the language to talk about these topics. Yes. Um, and so that was, I think, again, part of my providential journey is gaining the facility to articulate what was going on what yeah. I thought to be true. 
And that process for me led to eventually getting accepted in a PhD program over in, in Berkeley, California. So for me, wow. having promoted so much content of Terrence McKenna, Alan Watts, Robert Anton Wilson, looking at yeah. the Timothy Learys of the world, Ralph Metzner, um, R Richard Alpert, who becomes Ram Dass, producing yes. all that content, knowing how influential Berkeley, California was, I thought I reached the Mecca, right? This is my mm. holy Mecca in my worldview. You know, it's, it's not. It's not in Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> it's uh, it's in Berkeley, California. And then I get there, and I see how a lot of these things that I was assuming to be true, not living in a place that was working off a psychedelic or a new age or a progressive presuppositional framework, yeah. I then move to a place that is working off that framework, and I see, oh, my gosh, this is not what I thought it was. And then that mm. sent me into a new journey of... Now I have the language. Now I have a sort of underlying sophistication to approach this stuff. Well, what's going on? And for me, mm. that was the important part because I don't think I would have came back to Christianity without the really heady, philosophical, uh, theological, like, oh, I can point my finger to these ideas. I can make debates. I can try to prove somebody wrong. If I didn't have the mental capacity and the linguistic facility to uh, engage with that, I don't see how I would have got to Christianity where I am now. So I do yeah. see it as a providential journey and yes. how the psychedelics helped me get to that place. But I feel like God was always in control the whole time. Yeah. Amen. And it's like um, now looking back, I can now it's it's basically summarizing what you said. I can I can better communicate with that guy who is currently smoking weed every day. And, you know, he's he thinks mushrooms are the answer to everything and right. i can talk to that guy w with much more um i can relate to him now mm -hmm. in a way that i just couldn't and it's almost like people like us are kind of at, at, at really the risk of sounding like i don't want to sound grandiose or anything but we're, we're kind of needed to be there to talk to them because you mentioned that unless you're talking to someone who's also had the experience, you automatically kind of assume this guy doesn't really know what he's talking about. Exactly. And you, you dismiss them. And I know that because I used to do that. Right. Um, if somebody hadn't yeah. had the experience, it's like, well, I know I get you're trying to help me, but just go and just go and take this, go, go and try, you know, five diagrams, then come and talk to me. So, right. <laughs> and it's such an arrogant way to, to view the world because it's kind of like, oh, I know something. It's like this... Um, um, it's it, it it's like I have the secret knowledge, right? Which is right. such a classic trap to fall into. I have the yes. secret knowledge that nobody else has, and um, if only you knew, then you'd be able to uh, to be on my level. And and what's ironic is there's such an there's such a emphasis in the psychedelic community on eliminating the ego, on on initiating ego death, on um, Oh, you're not really alive until you've died once. And Christianity kind of stands, Christianity kind of comes in and says, well, yes, you don't want to worship the ego, but the manner in which you're trying to get rid of it is, first of all, not permanent because, well, one, once the effects wear off, your ego does come back. And usually it comes back stronger because now you think you know something that nobody else knows. Exactly. And you inflate. And Christianity is kind of like, yeah, you do need to get rid of your ego, but you need to crucify it with Christ. <laughs> right. And you need to 
you need to surrender your ego because if you're trying to kill your ego you're still trapped inside of your ego but the moment you surrender your ego you transcend your ego right. and that's a hard lesson to learn right because right. that's i mean that's really that's actually an ego death and it, it, and i'm speaking very loosely there but but yeah, yeah. May, may I say something in regards to all that is that oh, yes, I totally please. agree with what you're saying in regards to that secret knowledge, the dissolution of one's ego during the sort of apex of these experiences. As Terrence McKenna always talked about, these things dissolve boundaries and sort of, mm -hmm. and so he was always in support of the dissolution of boundaries in a multitude of ways. Now, he would argue against relativism, but at the same time, then he's promoting an epistemology that's rooted in one's own direct personal experience. He's all about believing one's own direct. Well, that's a phenomenological approach. And as mm. soon as you do that, now we're rooting truth within a subjectivity. And so there again, yeah. I think there was an internal contradiction within his worldview. Uh, he, he talked about being a rationalist and a Platonist and all this stuff. Um, so I'm sure he would have a, a rebuttal or a quip based on uh, my critique there. But the secret knowledge, I think, is a fundamental presupposition of the psychedelic worldview. And so for my PhD work, that's what I'm doing, is writing about the use of psychedelics post-1960s counterculture in America and how it is its own new religious movement. This has mm. not fully been articulated within the, in the field of religious studies, which is what, what I do. And so within the subfield of new religious movements, I'm looking at then psychedelics. And what I argue is that... <clears throat> It is rooted in the Western esoteric tradition. And so post-Protestant uh, Reformation, we're looking at 1517 there, that some of these reformers were really in opposition to Catholicism. And one of the things that they expressed their opposition to Catholicism is to form a more austere form of Christianity. And so they did away with a lot of the aesthetics. This is why so many Protestant churches, you know, they could be in a warehouse, they can be in an old business, you know, they don't look like a Catholic cathedral, Eastern Orthodox Church or anything uh, of the more traditional framework, because yes. the aesthetics aren't important, right? They come back to the solas and all this stuff. Well, because they did away with the aesthetics and also what we call the mystical dimensions of Christianity mm. for a much more rationalistic approach, what emerges in Western civilization is what we call the Western esoteric traditions, the forms of Hermeticism and alchemy, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, all these forms of magical thinking uh, rooted in ancient Gnosticism, again, something that Terence McKenna was very much a promoter of. Um, yes. So Gnostic understandings, Hermetic understandings, that all that stuff is rooted then back into this presupposition of secret knowledge, that one has to become illuminated. And so yes. there's this feedback loop within the psychedelics is that the, I argue and what I'm going to argue in my dissertation doing more, uh, doing more research is showing how the worldview, the theology, the, the presuppositions of psychedelia actually are emerging from the Western esoteric, the tradition of magic and witchcraft and alchemy and all this stuff, hermeticism out of Northern Europe, because that's where it really emerges, because we see it in the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, so we see the Catholic South. Uh, again, it's, it's not this distinct, it's not this clean, but just generally speaking in sort of abstract terms, the Catholic South versus more the Protestant North, and how all these magical things really get going in the Protestant North. Find, reaching for that mysticism, reaching for that aesthetic, reaching for all that stuff, which then again, look at the visionary art within psychedelia, look at all the... Um, 
the mysticism, yeah. the, the emphasis on one's own direct experience, seeing God, having these experiences, and then attaining that secret knowledge. So I see the fruitioning of a lot of the presuppositions within the history of magic emerging within the use of psychedelics. And That's so, and so uh, Harry Potter, uh, the Lord of the Rings, the sort of wizard archetype, I mean, it, it's hard not to be enamored with that when you're in deep into the psychedelics because this idea of magic is rooted because you you see things happen. You see again, maybe when you're not uh, high on whatever you are, it's not really happening. Yeah. But from your phenomenological approach, um, magic absolutely is real. And even from a Christian mm. worldview, we believe magic is absolutely real. That you can do ritual magic, and um, and so yeah, I wanted to just highlight that 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 secret knowledge aspect, and which then inflates one's ego when they come back because just as you said. I also, if somebody was to try to talk to me about psychedelics or spirituality or religion and they had never done psychedelics, well, it didn't matter what they are. They could be a priest, they could be a bishop, they could be whatever. And yeah. I would say, well, have you done this? Okay, so you haven't done it. <laughs> so why are you yeah. talking to me about it? Like you, you, yeah. it's, like, it's like a virgin trying to tell you about sex. And that's usually the <laughs> yeah. analogy that I would use. I agree. And I just wanted to highlight that that, uh, that secret knowledge is totally rooted even within Gnosticism itself, that rival tradition within Christianity that the councils were trying to purge from yes. the early church was all yes. rooted that, no, actually the whole point of all this stuff is for you to gain secret knowledge. It's all about mm -hmm. Gnosis. And Christianity yes. uh, within the, the councils is saying, no, it's not. It's, it's about following God's will, and it's, yes. a, and it's about morality, and it's about living a righteous life, and it's about discipline. It's about all these different things um, that, again, take an ego to do. So if you have no ego, yes. it's going to be difficult to, to be disciplined. It's going to be difficult to um, you know, have a much more rigid, as opposed to a dissolved boundary structure, much more rigid boundary structure. And that's why psychedelic culture is so in opposition to the patriarchy, because it's men who create and define and establish and protect these boundaries. And so when we look at the destruction of Western civilization, I think it, we just look at uh, men holding on to tradition and the absence of that. No wonder then this project has, has fallen apart. You know, Christendom is falling apart. Yeah. Yeah, I think a, a, an, a, an even more interesting question to ask is why are there the boundaries in the first place? Um, it's right. one thing to say, um, yes, we're actually all one. We're actually all, um, you know, the, the, the differences between you and me are purely subjective or purely contextual or pure, purely um, conceptual. Um, but, and yeah, I mean, you can play around. I mean, that was Alan Watts' whole thing, right? He had that famous right. bit where he said, can you show me the difference between my four fingers? It's like, well, you can't show me the difference because the difference is conceptual. And it's like, yes, but why is there? Why is the difference there? Why do I perceive myself as separate from you? And the answer that, well, I'm just playing a game on myself, doesn't satisfy me because it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't answer well enough for me the problem of evil. Because if right. if I'm just playing a game on myself, then I mean, I don't want to take the conversation there, but. I mean, if people are being led into a gas chamber, it's like they're just playing a game on themselves. Like it, it doesn't right. adequately satisfy my, I mean, you know, we can sometimes be so logical, but it doesn't satisfy my emotional requirements for, and um, great. Point. I mean, just speaking loosely, right? And so like, 
for one thing, it doesn't satisfy me intellectually or emotionally. And then another point is you're not addressing the fact that there are divisions within the world. Perhaps the divisions are there for a reason. Perhaps uh, you are you and I am I because we're supposed to <laughs> live individual lives and right. exercise the freedom I have in being an embodied person separate right. from you. But right. that whole question isn't even asked, you know, why are the divisions there in the first place? And I just want to jump back to something you said earlier because I can really yeah. relate which is you said that you basically said psychedelics made the world interesting to you again. Um, and hundred percent when I, after my first experience, I suddenly, I was reading books on economics. I wanted to know, I was suddenly interested in politics. I was suddenly interested in metaphysics. I wanted to read books on philosophy. I, the whole world, Chesterton has this great line where he said that, um, the world will never be short of, of, uh, wonders, but it will always be short of people who have no wonder. So it was <laughs> right, beautiful. And it's it sort of, um, at least in my situation, psychedelics did imbue me with the sense of awe and wonder at the, the sheer unbelievable fact that we are alive, the sheer joy and uh, magic, really, for lack of a better term, <laughs> at the fact that we are, uh, that we exist. And it's something that you take for granted, that you don't even think about, and suddenly your own, just the just waking up in the morning is like the biggest delight. It's right. uh, um, and and that's something I'll 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 always appreciate, right? That fact that the world suddenly, and, and okay, I should also say that the world has always been interesting. I just didn't really uh, didn't really see it, I guess, right. and. Right. Um, I think that that also, in some way, it leaves you, that curiosity puts you on a path where you go, well, I'm going to read as much as I can. I'm going to explore as much as I can. And then that starts narrowing options down. I'm not sure who said it, but there's this great quote that whenever you seek truth, even if you don't know it, you're actually seeking God. Um, because if, if Christ is the truth, and he is the way, and he is the life, any genuine search for truth will inevitably take you to that point. So that right. curiosity that psychedelics spur into you, um, I think in some way it, it it can lead you to that point. Now, I just want to add the caveat that like, I'm, I never want to encourage anybody to take psychedelics if they, right. just because they think life is boring, right? Um, life is interesting and you don't need psychedelics to, to, to see that. Um, right. It just happened to be the way that it, that it played out for me. Right. Okay, man. But I just wanted to ask you another question about that shift from Fractal Universe to the Church of Eternal Logos. Because I used to watch Fractal Universe. I used to listen to Joe Rogan and get high every night and play Fractal Universe in the in the bedroom. <laughs> and then if I couldn't sleep, I'd find an Alan Watts lecture to slowly right. lull me away. And you and um, me both, brother. <laughs> and all my guilt is I don't actually have to feel guilty about anything because guilt is just, um, right. you know, it's just something we've constructed. So. Um, okay. So was it, was it difficult for you knowing, you know, going, making that jump to church of the eternal logos, knowing that you had all these sort of hardcore McKenna fans and hardcore Watts fans that were sort of sitting there, they've subscribed to you. They expect X, Y, and Z from you. Um, was that, did that provide some, um, difficulty when you were making that shift to the eternal logos to the church? Yeah. 
Um, no question. And, and it wasn't just, you know, for, for those who are unaware, that channel is about 80,000 subs right now. Um, and I was making, that's how, that's how I was making an income to live in California. So um, I was, you know, making well over a couple thousand dollars a year, or I mean, each month, I'm sorry, um, just in the ad revenue from that channel. And again, getting into it, I was so convinced of that worldview. Then I moved to Berkeley, California. And again, like I said, I, I felt like I was at the top of that sort of apex, that, that pyramid of, of psychedelic mm. culture and all the psychedelic thinkers. And, and McKenna himself did his undergraduate at, at Berkeley. So I, I was right across the street over at the Graduate Theological Union. And um, wow. it uh, slowly but surely, I, I began to see how the presuppositions, the paradigm of psychedelic culture was leading to the immense homelessness, all the drug addiction that I saw around me. Uh, I couldn't go outside without seeing transgenders and uh, homosexuality, uh, you know, being displayed sexually in public. Um, and I just felt, I, you know, if I, re if I truly believed all this stuff, I should be totally forward and gung ho, but it didn't, it didn't sit right. And then inside the more academic discussions with scholars, the immense anti-white sentiment, anti-white male sentiment, um, the outright um, really um, criticism of any traditional form of Christianity. Meanwhile, so Christianity and, and the sort of traditional forms of it are being criticized. Meanwhile, in the same room, we have a fundamental Muslim. And so somehow Islam was getting a pass talking mm -hmm. about Christianity and white men and the patriarchy and all this stuff. And, and I'm seeing all this. And so I was object number one of criticism. Again, I like to debate, I, so I, I like to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with people in these sort of PhD discussions, but um, I was seeing how I was symbolic and representative of all these things that this movement that I was embedded in was in opposition to. And yeah. not realizing that, because I grew up in Indiana, which is a fairly conservative state in the United States, uh, always votes red. Um, and so me being in the psychedelics there, or even during my graduate studies in, in Illinois, the University of Illinois, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of an outlier. So I'm, I'm, embedded, I'm embedded within a society that's working off a different presupposition. Again, big ego. I have all this secret knowledge, done all these experiences, read all these books. You guys don't know what's really going on. Then I go to a place that actually is doing all that stuff. And I felt like for the first time, what really started to shake me and move me towards Church of the Eternal Logos was I saw evil. I saw what I perceived mm. to be evil. I saw people promoting minor attracted individuals, which is this the, the common euphemism right now for pedophilia. And Jeez. so um, I saw that, and I and uh, and it just shook me. And so while I, while I'm seeing all this stuff in my lived experience, my research was embedded in a book called the Psychedelic Gospels. It was written by Jerry and Julie Brown, and what that is about is all these frescoes that emerge in Germany, France, Spain, England, Italy, even Turkey, that depict what appears to be a psychedelic mushroom, usually the Amanita muscaria, the red and white mushroom. So there's wall paintings of what appears to be the original sin of Adam and Eve, eating from the mushroom and all this stuff. And so this book, in fact, it's... Uh, right here. And in fact, Jerry Brown is on my PhD committee. Um, but he wrote this book and I was enamored by it. I had, I had never heard this idea. What? So you're telling me this, so this is what was it stri striking to me. I'm deep into psychedelics. I'm doing all this stuff. Now, um, I'm seeing how these 
things like morality, the, these various things that I support are under attack, and then I say, oh, well, maybe Christianity is psychedelic. Look, look at this book, The Psychedelic mm-hmm. Gospels, came out in 2015. Let me, let me get deep into this. And he makes an argument for a secret Eucharistic tradition that was using psilocybin or psychedelic mushrooms for the Eucharist. Um, I did my own research for the, so that first semester where, again, I, I, I'm where I thought I wanted to be. And within just a, a couple months, I'm saying, wow, this isn't exactly what I thought I was getting into. Now I'm doing research into this book. And I'm saying, well, actually, this isn't even a secret Eucharistic tradition from the inception of Christianity. It's working off works by John Marco Allegro. Uh, he he did uh, all this stuff related to the Dead Sea Scrolls and early Christianity, arguing that Christ was a mushroom, yeah. which um, has yeah. totally been debunked. And so, <laughs> um, all that stuff is referenced in in their in their research. And when I did a deeper analysis of it, what I found is this was a contextually a historically contextualized phenomenon that between the 900s mm-hmm. and the late 1300s, before the 1400s, a group called the Cathars, um, okay. the Albigensians, they were southern France. They uh, were a heretical group of Christianity. They were they were extinguished due to the Inquisition. So they had a lot of people who were Templars and went to the Holy Land during the Crusades, and they came across Gnosticism. They came across the Manichaeanisms. Uh, the Manichaean, yeah. Manichaeanism is known for, and you can get into the research of Carl A.P. Ruck, looking at how Manichaeans were known for their consumption of mushrooms all the way over in China. And so... What they did, in my opinion, what my argument is, is that they came in contact with these practices and then brought them back to Europe when they came back after the Crusades, establishing Mm -hmm. this heretical form of Christianity where they began to express it within their art. Um, So this was my first semester. I see all that. And now I'm diving deep into scripture. I'm looking into Christianity, again, from a very psychedelic point of view, but yeah. I'm also very resistant to the progressive culture that I'm embedded in that is rooted yes. within the psychedelic paradigm. So they love my research with psychedelics. They, they think this is great. This is wonderful. And so I, it's like this internal turmoil that I'm feeling. So then after that first semester, I wrote this uh, pretty comprehensive research paper on, on all this stuff. Then I, I decide, well, there's a scholar named R. Gordon Wasson. He's kind of famous for really highlighting psychedelic mushrooms in the late 1950s based on his interactions with the shamaness, Maria Sabina, in Mexico. And so yes. him and his wife wrote this book called, it's like Russia and Mushrooms. I, I forget the exact title. It's a fairly expensive book. And his wife was Russian. And so what they talk about is within Slavic languages, Slavic culture, how immense the linguistic descriptions of mushrooms are. In English, we have mushrooms, toadstools, and fungus. That's literally the only words Mm. we have to refer to these plants, these things that grow in nature. Where in Slavic languages, they have hundreds of words. And so within Western, especially English culture, like people don't eat mushrooms the same way. It's a mushroom, it's a, it's a, um, it's a mushroom phobic culture, as opposed to Slavic cultures are much mushroom philic. And so they wrote this whole book looking at the linguistic stuff. And, and, I, and so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, you know what? I should look into Eastern Orthodoxy. I bet they have a bunch of, of mushroom stuff, given their roots within <laughs> Slavic languages. And, 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 and so yeah. that took me to a theology course where it got deep into Christian theology. And that is where mm. I encountered the more sophisticated arguments about this logo stuff. And yes. that 
is where then again, the, so I had gained, I was talking about how psychedelics prepared me. I think I wouldn't have been able to engage with this content and it makes sense if I hadn't gone through all this journeying and I already yes. kind of, you know, uh, expended all what I thought psychedelics could offer. And so I was still looking for more. And then I encountered this Eastern theological course. I'm looking at, at Logos. I find it very interesting. And I remember, again, still deeply rooted. You know, I still was rooted in my worldview. And I, and I said, well, if I was to choose a world religion, it would probably be Christianity because this Logos stuff is so interesting. And it's so, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Now, that was a spring semester. So that first semester is obviously a fall semester. Second semester is a spring semester. And that was where I did this Eastern Orthodox course. And then the summer happened, and I kept reading. And, I, and so the, the first book that I really bought was On the Mystery of Jesus Christ by St. Maximus the Confessor. And, and what he gets into, again, is this deeper understanding of logos, logoi distinction, energy essence distinction. And I'm kind of, I'm really impressed by this stuff. And by really, um, by the later half of the summer, I'm convinced that, okay, well, if I was going to, you know, become religious, it's going to be Christianity. And so I just yeah. get more and more interested in looking at this stuff. Eventually I decide, geez, I don't really support a lot of this, uh, a lot of the psychedelic stuff anymore. And so I, but I still have this thriving YouTube channel that is growing, you know, tremendously every month, making me lots of money. Again, psychedelics aren't the biggest thing. So it's not like, um, you're going to get a million subscribers or something doing this stuff, but it's going to be a diehard niche community that are going to watch your stuff all the time, which then produces more revenue. So I'm making money, I'm doing all this stuff, but now all of a sudden I don't, I don't feel like that doesn't resonate with me anymore. I'm reading all yeah. this Christian stuff and it becomes now a chore. Whereas before I looked forward to putting these videos together, they took hours to do because I'd find art, I'd find things to match up to it. And now it's like a chore. It's like this thing I have to do so I can pay my rent, and I hate doing it. And actually, inside myself, I felt convicted. I felt convicted that it was wrong, but also conflicted because I'm moving towards this a more Christian paradigm. And yeah. so that moves forward then to eventually 2009, where I start Church of the Eternal Logos. Again, I wasn't producing a lot of content, still not fully in a Christian paradigm. I'm, I'm straddling the two. But I know I, it's, it's very clear to me which direction I'm moving in. And I start making just a few videos. I just sit there in my little studio apartment with a camera in front of me, my cell phone, and I'll just talk about some topics. I'll talk about Gnosticism. I'll talk about psychedelics or whatever. And um, I did that for a little bit. And I began going to church regularly. I began to praying regularly. I began to uh, not engage with pornography and uh, all this stuff, just taking it more seriously. And that yeah. was a domino effect where things really started to move forward in my understanding. It was, it was actually taking my life and changing the way I lived that accelerated yeah. the process more than anything. And so then... Yeah. By August of 2019, I only have a couple hundred subscribers. It's it's very few people, and it, mostly it's people from the fractal universe who aren't sophisticated in looking at paradigms. They're like, "Oh, cool! You're gonna you're gonna talk about psychedelics and Christianity. Awesome!" And <laughs> yeah, um, and then it's in Tell August. Tell us how Jesus was a mushroom. Exactly, and and so <laughs> it's in August of 2019 that I realize. Um, that I I have to start actively denouncing this stuff. So it was early. 
early in the 2019 that I stopped producing any videos. Um, uh, well, actually, I, I had to produce a few until I actually moved out of California. So I still had to make video, but I was producing like Ru yeah. uh, Rupert Sheldrake talking about Christianity because he claims to be a Christian. Now, from where yes. I'm at now, I would be very critical of his Christianity because it's, it's immensely perennialistic. <laughs> it's immensely, I would say, un undertones of relativism. But uh, mm. I, that at least made me feel good. I could produce those videos. I could post them. I could still draw the reviews and the revenue. But I didn't feel as convicted by it. But in August of 2019, I decided that I was giving all that stuff up, uh, the money that I made from that channel, I, you know, I'm done with it, and that I, I just want to talk about what I actually believe to be true. And, and it was when I went full-time on Church of the Eternal Logos and tried to per produce at least three videos every week. And I'd done that for a year, uh, so about almost a year and two months now, um, a little over a year and a month. And so uh, that's what I've done. And, and I go to church regularly. I, I just, and I feel so much better. I just feel like I'm in, the, I'm in the right place. You know, we talk about synchronicities. I talk about God's providence. These are basically the same concepts, just approached from different perspectives. And, yeah. uh, and so that's, yeah, so long story long, uh, but, uh, that is really that sort of transition process from fractal universe to church of the eternal logos, which I know, uh, in, in tied to that, mind you, and I, I'm sorry to be rambling so much, but, no, um, no stress. um, I realized being in Berkeley, California, especially that late 2018 period, early 2019, that, the whole dream that I had been working up to that point is to be a professor. And I wanted to be a professor. I had this whole idea of having my office, teaching my courses, doing all this stuff. And uh, giving up the fractal universe was giving up that whole idea of being a professor as well, because I realized that I can't yeah. do that without subscribing to this other world because they're not going to let me do it. And so yeah. uh, that's why then I went full time with Church of the Eternal Logos in August, because I realized the only way out for me with all this stuff is to build an online following and an online business talking about traditional Christianity and, and, and actually what I believe to be true and trying to help a lot of the young men that are in the position that I was and uh, just really hopping on and live streaming for an hour, two hours and just talking about topics and trying to give people a rational, a logical uh, approach for why I am where I am. And so yeah. that's what I've been doing for the last uh, over a year. And that's what I plan to do for the rest of my life. I'm trying to, I'm trying to build a following and build a real business of people who trust you. And therefore you're funded by the people who consume your content. COVID-19 comes, they can't, you know, you have a job. Nobody can fire you. Nobody can take you down. The only thing is the social media companies, you know, so then yeah. building a revenue stream through one's website becomes essential. Building off one's own server becomes essential because this is where you're going to yeah. find real autonomy in a world in which you can't speak about truth because truth, like you said, ultimately leads to God. And I say it ultimately to the Trinitarian God of Christianity. Yeah. Wonderful. I mean, uh, you apologize for being a long story, but it's a good story, man. And like, once you become, once you, okay, so I don't think it's, okay, so I do think some people have a real silver bullet revelation moment where they just go, I'm a Christian. I do think that happens. Yeah, But agreed. Um, I think probably more common is that it's a gradual um, unfolding. There's an experience here. There's an indication here. There's all these arrows pointing in one direction. And it kind of, I, I mentioned um, 
to Owen recently that there's more it sort of it begins to take more faith to not believe that something's going on because you have all this all this indications pointing in one direction and um you're suddenly one day when you do realize okay am i really serious about this because if i am then this sudden urge that i just got to go and smoke weed or go and you know watch porn or whatever it is if i'm really serious about this then i'm not going to act on that urge Right. And that moment that you that you break that habit for the first time is the moment where you start walking with Christ. Well, I mean, I'm speaking very loosely again. Right. Maybe before that, you've already been walking with Him. But there's this moment where your where your your actions actually adjust in the physical world in relation to what you now believe, right. and that moment is is really when. Uh, <laughs> you kind of completely go on a different path and you end up somewhere completely different. Like I think if you'd said to yourself maybe five years ago, you know, in five years from now, you'll you'll run a, ch a channel called Church of the Eternal Logos. <laughs> I would have loved to yeah. have seen your face. I mean, <laughs> you probably would have right. been so shocked, right? And right. five years ago, I was sort of an angry atheist and um, I, I would never have thought, right? But it's really a testament to Christ and uh, yes. the power of the Spirit that a person can... I mean, just everything you've sacrificed, everything you've given up, right? And initially, it's like you, you, you don't want it to be true in some sense. Like as you right. start getting into it, it's like for easier me, if it isn't true, it's easier if it's true. Like I didn't, I didn't, you know. It's just it's the truth, and I have to adjust to it. It's not a matter of. And look, there are graces that come with that. Uh, at the end of the day, um, I'd much rather be aligned with the truth than anything that isn't the truth. And Amen. the the reason for that is just patently obvious. Um, but like, I I remember, I I had this view of Christ as, and Christ is so unique, man. Because even when I go to you know, when I talk to, I was going to say when I go to Cytron's festivals, but I don't go to those <laughs> anymore. But when I would go to them, you know, you, if mention Jesus, everybody has this respect and reverence for for Christ. Maybe there's one or two people who don't, but there's this like reverence for him. But it's almost like a type of Arianism where people think yes. he's just like a really exactly. great, you know, and it's it's um, people think he's just like a really great guy and he was a great moral teacher. And, you know, C.S. Lewis had that great line about, well, either he was he was a, a, a liar or he was a lunatic or he was the Lord. One yeah. of those three. He can't be a great moral teacher and also be this crazy liar who pretended to be God. Right. But anyway, so I started. I started seeing that all these arrows are pointing towards Christ, not just being a symbol of the enlightened individual. Oh, uh, Christ is someone who realized that he actually is God, and that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. And the thing that stands in the way of that is Christ himself. Who, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, he doesn't, if you actually go and read what he said, he's not, exactly. it's, it's like, if this is just a symbol um, of what I am, why did the apostles give their lives for a symbol that would benefit me um, to realize that I'm really God. I mean, was that also a game that they were playing on themselves? <laughs> so so it's it sort of, and then you start... A, a game in which they gave their lives up. Every single one of them, besides John the Theologian, the author of the Gospel of John, is the only person that was not martyred. And so again, that's yeah. not the greatest apologetic for an atheist, but as somebody, yeah. you yeah. get you, you can become more and more of a believer. You see, well, geez, all these people died for this something that they were proclaiming that they lived through. So I didn't mean to cut you off or, 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 no, or no, no. Uh, yeah, but, but I you're just right. wanted to, you're right. Yeah.
it, it's, it's, it's crazy when you think about it. And it's like, I would, I'd die for something I believe in. I wouldn't die for something that I thought was a myth or made up or a symbol. I mean, right. and not just death, right, mind you. I mean, some of these guys torture. Yeah. yeah, the way that people died and throughout throughout history, man, people today. And it's um, it's like you get to a point where you you don't you almost don't want it to be true, but then you realize it is true, and then you kind of are grateful that it's true. Right. Um, because ultimately it, it, it sets you free. And right. I wanted to really touch on something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned you were at sort of the Mecca of this movement and you were seeing the ideas being played out right. in the world, right? And you were seeing the consequences of those ideas. And, um, you know, you can, you can judge something by its fruits, right? And you exactly. can see that the ideas sort of, it might sound good, but it's, once it's actually put into practice, it, it's just completely a mess. And um, for me, one of the moments when I had that intense feeling that maybe the psychedelic community and the psychedelic world isn't really where it's at was actually at a Psytrance festival mm. where I was talking to this guy and um, he's still a friend of mine and we talk a lot and he's a good guy. And we were standing around one day, um, I think on maybe the second day of the festival. And he kind of came up to me and he was like, um, I think I'm going to have to stop smoking weed. And I, I went, um, what, wh why, why do you, do you feel like, do you feel like, is this like, do you mean permanently or is this a, what happened? Right. Cause I'm kind of confused. We're on day two of the Cytrons festival. <laughs> and like, this is the last place I expect someone to say that. Right. And, um, I'm also not really in the cleanest state of mind at the moment. Right. Sure. And I ask him and he, he looks at me and I see this like look in his eyes that I'd seen in my own eyes looking in the mirror like probably a thousand times where he kind of said to me, I think I have like a problem with it. Like I just can't stop taking it. And I'll never forget. I looked at him. I was like, you know, I understand. It's hard to say that because people in the community don't want to admit or acknowledge that there might be something wrong with what you're what you're doing. Um, they want to. They, they will. They will tell you that you aren't using it correctly, or they'll tell you that you are the problem. Right. And so he's he's caged in and he's stuck with this addiction. But he's got no one. All these people who are his friends, all these people who are his community, he can't say it to them because they'll they'll criticize him for just for even thinking that right. and in this sudden moment i realized that i thought that all of us here i thought we were the free ones i thought we were the ones who you know we we know things that society so backwards they don't know anything we've got we've got it all down we figured out the secret we all know something and you know right. uh, tonight at midnight it's going to be the best and and in that moment i just looked around and i just saw all these people who are dependent on one thing or another. And I, I shouldn't generalize, generalize right now. I don't no, think everybody really goes to these events. But, but at least in that moment, right, it, it was like a real intense feeling of like, we're, we're caged in. Later that, that same event, I met this, uh, this other guy I said, oh, you got to meet this lady, man. She's so cool. Her name is Lady Psychedelica. You have to meet her. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's this really cool... And she just turned out to be like a cocaine addict. <laughs> like, right. so I, and I, I met so many of those people. I, and I remember I, standing there thinking, this is like, I'm, I'd never gone that route, right? I was, right, I was right. a very like, I use this in a spiritual way. I use this it's, to dissolve too. my boundary. I'm not very here to heady drive hard stuff. All of it. 
Yeah, I would avoid the guys who were doing anything hectic. Yeah, the ketamine, the cocaine, all that stuff. Yeah, I, I mean, I never got into that. Praise, praise the Lord. But um, that that was there, and it was a very, it was everywhere pretty much. And I just kind of realized that even at the even at the festivals, I was the minority. Me and my one friend, we were like the minority. We're like the guys here who are, we're trying to take it spiritually. And I realized that is this really the kind of community that I think should be in control of the country or should be running or should be implementing policy, people with maybe this kind of mindset. And then on top of that, I then go to church with my girlfriend at the time, my now fiance, and people are like coming forward and telling, telling about their problems. And it's just the complete opposite where no matter what, how, no matter what you've done wrong, God's grace is sufficient. God's mercy is sufficient. Right. It's like the total opposite. There is room for forgiveness. You're not completely condemned and canceled if you said one wrong thing five <laughs> years ago, right? There's actually room for mercy and care and all the things that are actually worth fighting for. And so on top of just the emotional experiences leading me to Christ, the intellectual experiences, reading about the deaths of the martyrs, reading about the evidence for the resurrection, on top of all that, you're also witnessing evil and you're seeing the way it's playing itself out in the world. And you suddenly get invested and you suddenly see, oh my goodness, there's a war going on. Yes. And then the Christian view overlays itself on top of that and is, you suddenly see that what it's describing, you see what it's describing, is what I mean to say. Yeah, the peace and you're is falling into place. Exactly. And it's like you suddenly realize, like, oh, my goodness, everything I do is imbued with sacred consequence. <laughs> and every, every, my decisions, my – and it's, like, scary at first. It, it was for me. Yeah. But then suddenly it's like, oh, my goodness, I found meaning. I found – right meaning in my life, like this thing right. that I've been trying to drench and squeeze out of the psychedelic experiences mm -hmm. has always been here in abundance. Right. Um, and yeah, I, <laughs> I guess no, um, that is so well put, man. And, and, and continuing in that, in what you're talking about with your friend at the festival and, and your guys's realization, I came to that same place. And, um, what I didn't mention is after that semester of Eastern Orthodox theology, after that summer, I still was deep into into that worldview, still doing you know the cannabis every day, um, yeah. and I had an LSD experience where again, to me, it's not the LSD that gave me any sort of realization, but having done all that earlier work of reading and looking into the theology. I couldn't escape that the realization from this trip was to follow the logos. And and that again, coming down from that, it was the same thing. And it, it basically led to changing my behavior and changing the relationship I had to the cannabis because I smoked every day since I was an undergraduate, 1920, you know, all I basically through my entire 20s, I was high um, at some point in the day, you know, even and in what was you get to such a functional level with all that stuff that I could still go to graduate courses. I could outperform other students and I had smoked earlier that day or I was, you know, and, and then you build these feedback loops where like, Oh, well 
um, you know, I'm, I'm able to be who I am because I have this secret superpower. So like the movie Limitless, where the gentleman, you know, has a pill and because of that pill, he's able to learn languages faster. He's able to be more intelligent, do all this stuff. I think a lot of people fall into that psychological feedback loop that they have to have a dependency on something to be who they are or their success, whether it be the cannabis, the psychedelics uh, or the Adderall. You know, I was I I was never, yeah. as you said, I was never into the hardcore drugs, never did heroin. Uh, yeah. You know, wasn't into the ketamine, the cocaine scene that that is very prominent within the psychedelic culture. But uh, I did for a time get very deep into the Adderall stuff because like, oh, it allowed me to read. So then I I would be able to sit and read for hours. But then I'd also be hit, you know, token once in a while. So I like maintain this like low high. And then I'm reading and it's like, oh, you know, you feel great. And it's like, oh, you know, this is excellent. And I'm just this, this great person. And then eventually I came to the realization, well, who, who am I without all that stuff? And so even during the master's degree, before I became a Christian or anything, that I realized, geez, I have to give up this Adderall thing. And I did. And I was still maintaining just as much grace. I could still read. It just, the, I had to break the psychological framework that somehow I was only able to do it with these things. And the same yeah. thing came with the cannabis, uh, regards to, um, whatever, you know, ha having a new perspective on the world or all this stuff. But, but uh, the only thing that I want to say is, is echoing what you and your friend realized is that I also saw that I had a dependency and a problem with, with the cannabis stuff and that from a Christian worldview, this is all an addiction to a fallen world. And this is why we have to follow God's will and not man's yeah. will, because man's will is always going to lead us back to this world. And we're going to be attached to something or another. And, and you can't transcend, you can't move back towards God if you have, you know, a, a major weight around your ankle that's cannabis or sex or whatever it is, pornography or all these different things yeah. um, that, that you're stuck. You're stuck down here. And, and, giving that stuff up. And that's why I said the changing, the, the changing of the lived experience of one's life and your daily activities, that is what accelerated this process so much. Even my understanding of Christianity, because now living it and learning about it, it just, it, it moves you so much faster down this path. And so it's, it's just, like you said, I, I can't imagine I would be who I am now, um, five years ago doing what I want to do. Uh, you know, so yeah. I just wanted to echo that, that the realization yeah. you and your friend had, I also had a very, very similar uh, realization to that and, and had to change my, my habits. Yeah. And it's, it's like, um, I think a lot of people go through that constantly. And then the problem is if you're, if you're surrounded by people who are just kind of telling you to ignore it or just, you know, uh, you know, you, you go online and you, I, I often found with myself, I had this kind of bias where I, I wanted it to be okay. And weed really was right. the most difficult thing for me to give up. Like if I'm being honest, like it was very, very difficult for me to stop using it because it was so embedded within my identity. And I think right. this is maybe another interesting topic we could just touch on is there's this idolization of Alan Watts, this idolization of Terence McKenna, and then also an, even to some degree an idolization of individual of individual substances like weed and you know you had this great video about our mad search for identity right. and how we 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 want we try to incorporate things into our identity to try and give us some sort of structure to what we are um and 
the more the, I think the more we lack an identity, the more desperately we seek something. Right. Um, it's almost like we've got a god a god sized hole, and we're exactly. throwing things into the hole, right? Trying to fill it up, but um, and that might be weed. So you know, I'm wearing like weed shirts and you right. know, weed sticker on the back of my car, or um, and it's like I want people to associate that with who I am. Um, and you know, I used to be, I used to be really into like comic book conventions and, um, uh, you know, like going to comic cons and I really have nothing against that. And I enjoy, I enjoy, um, I enjoy that whole world, but I would often see people taking it so far where like their whole life is star Wars or their whole life is star Trek or, you know, everything they do is, and they live for that next convention where they can become someone else and just cosplay. And I, I really need to make this clear. I have no problem with, with someone wearing a costume or cosplaying. I think the problem comes in where you find more comfort in that identity than just your everyday identity, because your everyday identity is actually that you're a child of God. Yeah. And that, that pillar of Christ within you is, is so much more than satisfactory right. to fill that longing that you have. But as long as you don't understand Amen. that longing, you're desperately going to seek it. And you'll do it in the music you listen to, the bands you like, uh, the the gurus you follow, Watts right. or, or McKenna. Or, and again, it doesn't mean that these people like Watts or McKenna don't have valuable insights, don't right. have valuable things you can learn from them, of right. course. Um, there's a lot of things that Watts has said that I really resonate with and I really enjoy and I, I think are great ideas. But it's once you idolize someone that it becomes a problem. It's once you bow to them and forget that they're an aspect of the creation as well, like you, um, that the problem enters in, right? And like you said, you start worshiping a, f a fallen a fallen world and we reflect what we worship, Right. And so and, our, our fallenness is amplified. Yes, please go on. I was going to say exactly with what you're talking about, that fallenness, we worship the fallen world, and then how that Christian worldview, the pieces fall into place, is this is the biblical battle. Yes. The biblical battle, the way that Satan works in the world, is to always get us to idolize either him or this world, because he is in charge of the—he has dominion over the fallen world, and so whether it's mammon— whether it's sex, whether it's drug, all these things is, is once you see those pieces fall into place, again, it, it just, it takes you a little bit further out. You have to zoom yeah. out of, of the, the paradigm a little bit more, but man, and then that meaning returns because you are like, oh my gosh, we are in a battle. This is all about our souls. I do have yeah. a soul. You have a soul. And every decision we make is actually important. Yeah. And I mean, someone watching this might think it's very abstract, but I'll make it like, I'll make it, I'll make it practical as potatoes. If I'm climbing out of bed in the morning and I'm feeling lazy and lethargic and, you know, I don't really want to do anything. And then I know in my mind, I know in my intellect, I, I, I should go for a run. Um, it's like that right there is, is like almost a, I don't know, battle sounds like such a grandiose term, but it's like a battle between my will and my intellect, what I know I should do, my will and my intellect, my sort of higher faculties, and then my lower faculties that just want me to lie in bed. And, and it's like, even in moments like that, I have to ask God for grace to overcome that, that, um, that, that desire to re reject the hard road. Th that's just like one tiny example, but that, that, um, 
it translates to every other area of your life where suddenly all your relationships, you now have to reevaluate the way you treat other people because, listen, this person that I'm talking to, whether I like them or not, God died for them. So I have to actually change, like there's someone that God is willing to die for. I probably shouldn't be such a jerk just because they said something two years ago I didn't like. Like, um, and so every aspect of your life has to be reorganized and reshuffled. And once you find that organizing principle of logos within it, it, it actually begins, it works within and then it sorts sort of begins to, you see it reflected in the external world around you. And I mean, man, nothing works like that. Like that is the most reliable (laughs) thing. Like, I mean, I've tried alchemy. I I, I got really into hermeticism for a time. I try to make systems work, man. Okay, so I, I think um, I think uh, we're gonna round this off. I have like okay. um, just uh, two final questions for you. Yeah. Um, one is kind of simple, but it can it can go on for a long time depending on your answer. But <laughs> other <laughs> other than the Bible, what is one book that you would recommend to um, if you could recommend one book to everybody to read? Other than mm. the Bible, what 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 would that be? Wow. Um, what book comes geez. to mind? Jeez. Um, or you can even recommend it to a specific group of people. It doesn't have to be everyone. Well, you know, I almost I guess maybe I should just go back to the one that really helped me is on the cosmic mystery of Jesus Christ, okay. and because. Um, this is what was the hook, line, sinker for me. Um, the reason why is what Maximus, Conf- the confessor, is doing. Um, it, it's not just a more sophisticated understanding of Logos, which, yes, that's part of it. But it's showing a, a the mystery of Jesus Christ is the universe. It's not just—it's uh, it, so big, it's so cosmic um, mm. that that— it allowed me to realize, again, this is coming from uh, the 8th century, so it allowed me to realize that the whole God is the universe thing, that entire paradigm is actually smaller than the paradigm of Christ himself in the full revelation. Mm -hmm. That the, the idea of, oh, well, think about the Hubble Space Telescope and space and, and the Neil deGrasse Tysons and the Bill Nyes of the world where there's no room for Christ. There's no room for these religious dogmatic worldviews. And in fact, your worldview as somebody subscribing to the sort of scientism, um, it, it, it's so small. It's actually, it's so limiting. And you're the one that actually needs to step out and, and see the larger mystery, which is Jesus Christ, which is the Logos. And so, um, you know, there, I I could go on with a bunch of books. I have so many uh, that I'm reading or have read or, or going through, but yeah. this one was really impactful for me. And so this is, is from what's called the Popular Patristic Series. And yeah. So, um, it, you can get this. It's only going to be like $14 or something on Amazon, not an expensive book. Um, and Ma- St. Maximus the Confessor is a very important individual, uh, both within Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And uh, I think I haven't it, read it's it. beautiful. Oh, and, and, I haven't read it, but I'll check it out. It looks good. Um, 
Sounds good. Uh, it, and maybe it's not for everybody, but it's it's something that it was greatly impactful for me. And and again, like I said, this was sort of the hook line thing. I had already primed the well. You know, I'd already done a semester of Eastern Orthodox theology, really getting deep into the weeds of of the theological discussions. But um, I, I love that book. I have a video where I basically read the entire book in a live stream. It was like three and a half hours. Um, uh, just oh, wow. because I thought it was so, it was just so great. So that, that would, that would be my response for that question. That's awesome. I did, I did a similar thing. I'm doing a similar thing right now with on the incarnation by St. Athanasius, where I'm, I'm reading each chapter, dude, it's a classic. I have it right here. I have it right here. I love this book. Uh, great, great introduction by C.S. Lewis. Um, I haven't read that, but. Um, I haven't read the introduction by C.S. Lewis. What I have is uh, On the Unity of Christ. This is from uh, Krill of Alexandria. Uh, so another one of the popular patristic series. But, awesome. Uh, um, I do love the Church Fathers. I know for yeah. some people getting into the Church Fathers is a little bit difficult. Sometimes you have to have a little bit more of a philosophical uh, vocabulary um, or a, a theological vocabulary. So I, I've, I've, again, I've recommended this book to some people and it didn't resonate with them like it resonated with me. And, and yeah. uh, so I don't know how some of the listeners watching this might, uh, where they're at in their process and how maybe they're going to be able to take in some of that knowledge or wisdom from it. But uh, just like you're talking about on the Incarnation by St. Athanasius, uh, it's, I love, again, this is one of the things that if I do have an addiction, and one of the things why I think I fell so deeply into the psychedelic stuff is I love having my perspective shifted. And so when I read, and and that's one of the things about Christian theology that has been so um, beautiful for myself is that, you know, you, you, I never thought this would be the case, but I can read St. Athanasius on the Incarnation, I can read a chapter of that, and who I am afterwards, like the way that I'm viewing it, has so radically yeah. shifted, and it, and now new things have made sense, the puzzle pieces fall even more into place, yes. like, I, I, that is a thrill, I love that, I just yeah. absolutely love it, and then it makes yeah. you want to read more and learn more. Yeah, exactly, and that it's that it's that feeling that um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb he wrote that in Sergio series, which is quite good, um, Black Swan and uh, okay. Skin in the Game, sort of economic business, but also sort of uh, ethics books. They're really interesting, and he has this he has this word I can't remember it now, but he has this word he uses to describe when you're reading a book, you get to a point where you understand what the author is doing, and suddenly it grabs you. Right. He gives it a name. There's this moment, and for me, I can completely resonate with what you're saying with. On the incarnation, each chapter has so many interesting. Because he sort of starts with, um, well, at least in my reading, it's sort of like a, almost like a problem. Like, okay, some people say this, uh, the Greeks say this, the Gnostics say this, this group says this, and um, let me show you what what's really going on. And then as he's explaining it, it 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 clears away. Um, a lot of the, for, for me at least, it cleared away a lot of the misunderstanding I had on the topic, where mm-hmm. I thought I knew it, I thought I knew, I sort of thought I had an understanding, but he comes in and sort of layers on uh, deeper consequences of the incarnation, deeper consequences of the resurrection, deeper consequences of the death. And um, then every time, every time you think about Christ on the cross, it's like all those implications come with it because you've now, right. you've now, um, 
you've now internalized those understandings. So it's not just right. Christ on a cross anymore. It's it's right. everything associated with that, right? And exactly. then it adds more fervency to, you know, every time you just see a cross and suddenly the world looks different. And I get that feeling with G.K. Chesterton. Every, yes. every chapter. Everlasting man. I got orthodoxy. I have a... I have another one from him. Yeah, I love G.K. Chesterton. It, it, very, the way he writes uh, is very interesting. It's it's a different the use of word the 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 process of thought isn't like you know the typical things that you read. It's it's very interesting. But yeah. I, agreeing with you, I'm a big fan of G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, he's like um, I heard it once described. He's like reading him is like drinking champagne. It's like just bubbling off the page. And you kind of have to go, you have to go back and kind of, cause he just, he hits you with an idea and you're like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. And then you keep reading again. It's like another one, the next sentence. And it's like, right. okay, hold on. And it's, everything just rings so, so true and so cleverly. Right. Um, yeah, gosh, I love him. Um, he was actually really instrumental in me um, seeing the value of traditional um, religion, um, especially coming from a Protestant background through the atheism, through the psychedelics, through the sort of Watsian Advaita Vedanta view coming right. out of that. Um, again, just sort of naively and uh, maybe not naively, maybe not the best word, but sort of innocently looking to Protestantism again, uh, after reading Chesterton, he exposed me to the, the romance of orthodoxy the romance of having a religious life. Like religious life always seemed, it almost seems like a, a negative term in, right. in today's world, right? But there's yep. this, um, we sort of touched on it earlier, but you're suddenly thrust into this epic battle of good and evil and your actions are imbued with consequence. And that that is, I mean, it's 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 a it, life suddenly becomes a love affair between you and the author of life. Right. And seeing exactly. it through that lens is, um, is well, it's 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 the lens. <laughs> it's yeah, what, it's what the antidote to nihilism is to realize yeah. that the the, um, the immense importance of what we're doing right here, and and it's it's certainly it's a difficult place to get if you are deeply in a nihilistic place uh, and worldview. Um, you know, it's not going to be an overnight. At least yeah. I think for a lot of people, it's not going to be overnight for you to get to that sort of very mystical, profound realization of the importance of your decisions. But to me, that's the only antidote, because once you get out of there, you, again, you never go back to that place. I don't see how you can. Yeah, it would be. C.S. Lewis said uh, hell is like hell is locking. Oh, sorry. The door to hell is locked from the inside. <laughs> so. It's yeah. like this idea that like I would lock that door at this point, it seems. And I think that's I think that's maybe we didn't really touch on the tag on the transcendental argument for God. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes uh, um, there's this I don't think when an atheist is maybe arguing logicalities, they're not considering the romance that comes with the religious life. And right. it's like, yeah, I understand you've got logical arguments, but man, like life is good. <laughs> like there's this, exactly. there's this intimate relationship and um, it's not just a matter of uh, logicalities. That's a very important part of it, but it's not, it's not the whole, it's a piece of the pie, but it's not the whole pie. And then um, 
David, uh, Patrick, I just wanted to ask you another question just before we really wrap up is where can people find your work? Where can people, you mentioned you've got a lot of books. I know you've got a great channel where you go through a lot of books. So if somebody's watching this and they're really interested, where can they find your work? How can they support what you're doing? Let us know. So uh, first place is going to be my YouTube channel, and that is Church of the Eternal Logos. Um, also, I have a website, which is churchoftheeternallogos.com or davidpatrickherry.com. They'll take you to the same place. Um, on Instagram, I also show, share a lot of sort of my daily life. Uh, that is at D-P-H-A-R-R-Y, D-P Harry, so David Patrick Harry. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do now, in addition to all this sort of academic, theological, philosophical stuff, is show people, uh, specifically young men, how to build their body. And so going to the mm. gym, I share that, you know, every morning I'm going to the gym, I'm hitting weights. I'm I'm construct because to me this is uh, embodying a lot of these principles, and that the discipline it takes to work on your diet, work on your fitness, is a ripple effect to your spiritual life. And so, yeah. uh, what I've noticed in some of these more traditional circles online is that a lot of men are using traditional forms of Christianity as the on their only source of masculinity. So they want to bash women, they want to talk about homosexuals, they want to talk about the degeneracy of Western civilization, but then they hide behind anime uh, icons and stuff. And if you actually saw what they look like, they're, they have bodies of prepubescent boys, and they're losing their hair in their early 20s. And, and it's like, well, you know, you bitching and moaning on Twitter is not helping the cause. You're not doing anything. In fact, what you need to do, if you actually mm -hmm. believe this stuff, instead of using traditional forms of Christianity, Catholicism with the Groypers, I see this with some of the Groypers, and, uh, and even within the Orthodox circle, the Ortho Bros is what they call themselves. It's like, if you, were, if you want to take it serious, you really want to make a difference, work on yourself. You know, I have a lot yeah. of critiques of Jordan Peterson, but certainly that, thing, that idea, I think, really resonates in that too many yeah. men, they want to use tradition as a way, as a, as a baton to beat the degenerate forms of society, things that we, we would be op in opposition to. But at the same time, how can you bitch about women when you're not even a man? And so that's what that's what I'm trying to do and transition uh, a new dimension to my channel is, is going to be Logos Fitness, building temples yeah. to house the spirit and really oh, love you know, it. And so, um, you know, it's not everybody needs to be a bodybuilder or anything like that. I have a particular aesthetic that I like, but it's about people learning the tools because I get emails from young men and they didn't have fathers. They don't know what it means to be a man. Um, they yeah. never went to church. They're very much interested in, in traditional forms of Christianity. They've never been to a gym. They've never lifted weights. What do they do? Where do they start? Well, that's what I'm going to add to my channel now is uh, moving forward, hopefully in the next week or so, producing videos on, you know, quick videos, interesting videos on fitness, and even tying that into uh, C.S. Lewis has a really beautiful quote on, we, um, we have, or some, you know, again, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not as good at quoting quotes as you are, but basically we have men without chest, and we expect them virtue and enterprise, um, and we have, and then they basically are, fail to be honorific, and we find, um, traders in our midst. And so the idea of even mm. having a chest. So when I look at somebody's male fitness, you know, building one's chest is one of the more difficult things to do in men's fitness, especially your upper chest. We're all born with a little bit of a lower muscle on our chest, but the upper chest is so difficult and, and chest exercises themselves are pushing exercises. And yes. so I'm going to do a stream talking about at a symbolic theological level, 
establishing one's presence in the world is a sort of pushing exercise, gaining space, getting yes. yourself in position, establishing your position in the world. Even if you want to be virtuous, then you're resisting a fallen world, which is a pushing exercise. Yes. So the chest and developing one's chest is tied to then that thing that even C.S. Lewis was talking about in regards to men having the backbone and the ability to stand up. Even if you're going to build, again, he talks about enterprise. If you want to build a business, that is establishing oneself in the world. And so we can do that by going to the gym. And then I think that ripples through a multiplicity of ways in our life. But where you yeah. can find me, Church of the Eternal Logos, at DP Harry. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Gab. I'm on Minds, all through the handle at DP Harry. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at Eternal underscore Logos. So if anybody is interested and they want to follow uh, some of my stuff, they can see me there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, of course, link all of this in the description. So if you want to check out any of these things that uh, Patrick just mentioned, the links are all going to be in the description. So feel free to go and check him out. He's got really cool work. And I'm actually personally a big fan. And uh, oh, thank you, Patrick, brother. thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for your time. Like, I really, actually, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was no, great. this was great. I, this was a really deep and, I think, substantive conversation. It was really good. Awesome. awesome. Glad to hear it. Okay, cool, man. Well, uh, chat again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. God and, bless um, you and your fiance, and uh, you know, uh, be with you and your family. I know we're living crazy times right now, so just uh, God bless you guys and and good luck with everything. Thanks, man. God be with you guys as well, and uh, God's blessings on your channel and all the work you're doing. Thank you. Cool. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Hey, wow, you're still here, right at the end of the interview. And I just want to say thank you so much for watching. If you want to support the work I'm doing here on the channel, there are a few ways you can do that. Subscribing to the channel is one, clicking the notification bell, giving this video a like, leaving a comment. But a new way you can support Existential Delight and get yourself some really cool looking merchandise at the same time is by checking out my new online store. I've just released several classic designs for the metaphysically mannered individual. Plus, since it's the launch, we have a launch sale. Get 20% off your purchase by using the promo code DELIGHT at checkout. That's DELIGHT, D-E-L-I-G-H-T, DELIGHT, all caps. This opening sale is valid until 6 October 2020, so don't miss out. Get yourself some epic aesthetic merch, support this channel, and get a cool discount. Once again, promo code DELIGHT, D-E-L-I-G-H-T, all caps. And on that note, I'll see you next time.